Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. My name is Brandon Eitzen. Um, my wife and I, we have been members at COA, originally Brookline, since we moved to Boston almost seven years ago and now, and uh, since we've been with Brighton since we launched about five years ago. And um, I don't know, starting about a year ago or so, I uh, started on the pasture track here. Um, if you want to know more about that, I'll have to tell you later. Basically, one thing I hate, so I'm an Auburn football fan. There's this thing in the South called college sports, and... Um, and I went to this university a long time, and they usually are uh, bad. And they play another team. Their arch rival uh, is usually very good, University of Alabama. And one of the great things, the silver lining of being in that situation, is that every time we play them, um, we've got nothing to lose and everything to gain, right? If we can upset them, it's great. If we lose, eh, that's what was expected anyways. And that's a great thing about being on the pasture track. So it's good when you make a point and people get it without you having to finish it. That's a good point, right? So if this goes poorly, good news for all of us, right? Like maybe, maybe you're not stuck with me um, in the long term. So um, we're preaching through the book of John. This is uh, one of the four closest things we have to biographies of Jesus. And we have been going through it now for weeks. We like to try to step through the scriptures. We believe they're God's word. What he has to say and the ideas contained there are the ideas we need for all people, all times. Um, and we started with the theme, what most people believe is the th- most thematic verse in John, post-resurrection of Jesus. It's in John chapter 20. And it's right after this story of Thomas doubting He's one of the apostles, uh, disciples of Jesus. And he says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I can touch him. Unless I can put my fingers in, his, in the holes in his hands, in his side, I'm not going to believe. And he gets to do it. And Jesus says to him, do you believe now because you have gotten to touch and see these things? You're blessed because of that. Blessed also are those who have not got to see and touch, but also believe. And then there's the theme verse. These things are written to you so that you may believe. And by by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay. The scriptures here, John's letter is his attempt that you and I, the readers of it, get to see and touch Jesus. And the end of that being, we get eternal life. We get to know him, believe in him and get to live forever free from sin. Now, the biggest problem that we have and one day the promise that the other things will be gone too that we struggle with. And so that we get to know that in hindsight, that's John 20, but that's not where we, he starts. He starts with this unbelievable prologue where he says, in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Everything that has come into being came into being through Jesus. And then verse 14 of chapter one, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, John is trying to help us see Jesus' glory, experience it, touch it, believe it, and experience life in his name. And it's no different as we get to chapter five. But some things have become different in this story. Jesus starts to get introduced on the scene with John the Baptist in chapter one. He starts to reveal himself a little bit to some of his disciples, starting to grow. And it grows a little more. A a Jewish leader comes to see him by night in John chapter three, Nicodemus. Curiosity, interest. Jesus goes in targets, spreading even more to the Samaritan woman at the well, chapter four, and her going and telling other Samaritans and other Samaritans are experiencing. There's this initial belief, excitement, curiosity in Jesus, and then there's a turn in chapter five. Very important one, opposition. Challenge, we just read it at the start of the verses, guys. So the flow, what what happens here at the start of five, we, we learned last week is Jesus does a miracle. He healed a man's been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, and he tells him to pick up his mat and walk, and then Jews see this, and they say, no, no, we are, and they're persecuting him because of it. Let's read it in verse 16 again. He says, you'll, you'll do well, I don't have a bunch of notes, so you can follow along on screen, you'll probably do well to have a copy of God's word open in front of you, would be my guess. We don't want to put the pressure on the slides, people, for this, all right? This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay? This is the turn, this first time we're see, reading about direct opposition. So as we go through this, this passage today, it's a very basic flow, right? These Jews think that Jesus is claiming to be God. Because of that, they want to kill him. And then Jesus responds to that. A very long densely theological, highly personal response. So I don't know who thought it was a good idea to assign that elder track guy the 30 verses of Jesus' explanation of the Trinity. All right, but here we go. I'm going to do my best. I, I started to list out. Some of you know, like, you know I like to list out. Here's what I'm not going to address, just so you know. And I started that, and I, and I gave up. I just gave up. Like, I, this is the amount of secondary implications that I'm going to leave untouched. I hope you'll be willing to find me afterward if there's something important that you think we should have commented on that, that we didn't get a chance to. But my focus is this main flow of the text. I think that's what's most important. Why is it here? They accuse him of claiming to be equal with God. Jesus, we're going to talk about that. Why do they think he's claiming that? First. Second is, how does he respond to it? Jesus responds by embracing it and amplifying it. Then Jesus is going to explain that there's some witnesses, that he's not the only one who's ever claimed this about himself. There are these witnesses. He's going to talk about why it is that they, how it is they've received those witnesses and what does that mean? My goal is as we do this, that we ourselves, we will grasp some of the magnitude of what Jesus is claiming we cannot talk about it enough. I'm so excited to talk about it. We just got to talk about a lot of these things in, earlier in John, around Christmas time. We get to talk about them again. Cannot do it too much. As we look at it and we look at what, what does unbelief look like? What does it mean if we do not see these things in Jesus? And give us a chance to reflect on maybe our own 
our own unbelief, the world's unbelief, and hopefully we can walk away with some, I think there's some implicit actions that we can learn from this as we go. So we'll see how we do. Firstly, verses 16 through 18, the Jews think Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. Pick back up in in 17, Jesus' response to them of doing these things on Sabbath is, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. It's a very unusual line when I first read this, continue to read it. Jesus taught us to pray, say, our father in heaven. We call God father. He tells us to. Are we claiming to be equal with the father? Like, no. And Jesus didn't intend that when he told us to pray it. So why do these Jewish people think that Jesus is claiming divinity to be equal with the father? I get to teach you now a very, very important hermeneutical principle, a principle of how do we interpret things, okay? You don't have to know the answer, okay? It might help, it might add more insight, but actually we don't have to know why. John has led us through and said, they think he is. We, don't, we didn't get to hear Jesus. How did he say it? What else did he say around it? It has something to do with working on the Sabbath and I don't really understand that. It must have something to do with that. So you can so, still on your own, keep reading through John 5 and benefit. The important thing is they think he's claiming it and then he embraces it. Next, we'll get to that next. But to not leave you totally hanging, Okay. There are some insights, and it's not easy to say because uh, we don't fully agree. We know it has something to do with this working on the Sabbath. The fourth commandment is you don't work on the Sabbath day. And Jewish people had a lot of writings on like, well, God, doesn't God work on the Sabbath? God continues to uphold the universe all the time and sustain it. Right? And so how does he, and there's all kinds of writings about like, what can we do on the Sabbath and what can't we? And based on those answers, how is it God's not violating those things? So there's lots of discussion I'll spare you on, around that. But the point is, the Jewish people believed God can work on the Sabbath. He can. He's allowed to. And Jesus says, I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath too. I can heal on the Sabbath. I can command a man to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath. That something to do in that realm. The Jews think Jesus is claiming to be equal with God because Jesus says, only God can work on the Sabbath? Yeah, me too. Because I'm God. That's the claim. So now where we'll spend a lot of time is verses 19 and following. The Jews think, firstly, Jesus claiming to be God. 19 following, Jesus says, you betcha. You betcha. I'm going to do my best to try to summarize some of the high-level things because it's just woven. All, he, he makes several comments back and forth. Some of the points he makes that are just astounding. Absolutely astounding. 
Firstly, look in verse 21. Jesus has the power to give life. He has the power to, this is both spiritual life and physical life are talked about in chapter five and elsewhere. Like all of his miracles, physical material, now miracles, they're both significant in themselves. They point above and beyond. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Not just individual. We know there's one coming. Many who are familiar with the Bible at all, there's a very important resurrection coming here in John, but not just these individual ones now in Jesus' earthly ministry, but truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, eternal life. Not just you can extend your life here a little longer on this earth. You have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, it's passed from death to life. Then verse 20, wow. Verses 25 and then 28 and 29. I won't read them for you. Let me summarize. There is a day coming in which every human who has ever lived and ever died at the voice of Jesus, they will raise from the dead. So many who have grown up in church and have heard about the resurrection at the end of times, like that is just water off a duck's back. Any individual whom you can think of, relative famous person, Julius Caesar, Beethoven, Gandhi, any of them, they will be raised to life and standing before Jesus. Whether their body is at the bottom of an ocean or has been incinerated by fire, they will be raised to life by the power of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Jesus is claiming to be God. That's one. Second, Jesus is the judge at the end of these ages. They were resurrected in the ages and the father has delegated the judgment to the son. We will stand before him and he is the one who will say this way or that. Now this one's interesting. We're not gonna get into it, but it's the son of man. Very interesting, the Bible makes a big deal that Jesus is the judge, but it's very important in Christianity and in God's mind that this is not merely God, it is also God-man. The God-man serves as judge. So he is not this indifferent, cold, distant, unsympathetic judge. He's a judge who's experienced everything just like us and can relate. Nonetheless, that authority to judge is Jesus's, is the Son's. Verse, that's verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. I'm not gonna give all of it. I'll give two more. Two more. Jesus is claiming and amplifying to be God. He says, I have life in myself. That's verse 26. As the father has life in himself, as the Father is, He exists necessarily. The Father, God, does not depend on anything else to exist. There is no possible universe in which there is not the Father. All the rest of us are contingent. We did not have to be here. And our life, our existence is, is animated from somewhere else. 
only one thing exists necessarily, inherently, impossibility for him not to exist. It is God. And Jesus says, that type of existence is the one I have. He was in the beginning with the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's back to John 1. Jesus has life in himself. He is, and if we have life, we are part, that's the source. He is that wellspring, the origin from which we have it ourselves. What an audacious thing to say, Jesus. He is self-existent. Lastly, this is uh, uh, verse 19. The first one is the summary of all that he has to say on this. Right. Verse 19, the very end of that verse, he says, for whatever the father does, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Whatever God does, I do. Does the father create? The son creates. Does the father save people in part red seas? The son does that. Whatever God does, I do. Like work on Sabbaths. I do it. Jesus embraces the claim to be God and he amplifies it. He does qualify along the way too. He is kind of like he's saying, I'll do, I'll spend briefer on this because I don't think it's the main point, but it's like he's saying to these Jewish people, he's like, you, you think I'm claiming to be God? Hey, it's not as bad as you think. And it's worse than you think too. It's both. And I just did the worse than you think part first, right? He also says, he says, I do whatever the father does. I do, but I only do what the father does. I have life in myself, but it, it was granted to me to have life in myself. I'm the judge at the end of the ages. The father has appointed, he has delegated that role to the son. So this is doctrine of Trinity stuff. I'm not gonna go any further on it, only to say this wonderful idea. Jesus is not, Jesus is not saying, you dummies, you should understand the Trinity. That's not the idea, okay? But we should be aware. We should be aware, like this monotheism, there is only one God and it is not simple. It is not simple. It is a complex monotheism, okay? Even things I've said to this point, I cringe over because I know I want to qualify everything I've said, right? That there are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not, they are different. They are different from one another. The Father does not become incarnate and die on a cross. The Son does. So as soon as I say things like, well, whatever the Father does, I do. And I only do what the Father does. It's like, Okay, well, Jesus said it, so I'm not afraid to say it, but the Father didn't become incarnate, <laughs> right? So we're not gonna go, do a long Trinitarian thing. I, I put these things out there to be like, to try to flag, like, I kind of get it. I'm aware of it. Let's talk about it more. Like, don't take anything too far uh, the wrong way. Let the scriptures guide us. Nonetheless, I don't think too many people in our day and age are, are worried about making Jesus too divine, to, to the neglect of the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's probably a rarer error than we don't give Jesus the credit, attention, role. He's just a good, another teacher. Another one of those religious teachers who taught us good stuff. I'm glad he lived. Good for him. 
right? That's the more common mistake. And the same one the Jews were making at this point. We'll find with you being a rabbi, working on the Sabbath, we are not fine with. This is what he expects and wants for us. Okay. So we've seen now, they claim that Jesus is claiming to be God. He says, yes, yes, I am. And let me elaborate. Okay. Now he immediately goes into, this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, looking at theirs, trying to compare it to ours. Um, Jesus says, I'll tell you the point. We're going to look at these witnesses. We're going to look at their response to these witnesses. And what does their response mean? He interprets what it means that they have this kind of response to the witnesses. The transition is in verse 31. That's where the transition, I was really thankful last night. Jess has the NIV uh, Bible. I have the ESV. I don't like where they did the paragraph breaks in the ESV. You know those are not inspired in the original. That's our best interpretation. There's a transition at 31 where he transitions these witnesses and he says, hey, I don't do anything by myself. I only do what the father does. I'm not rogue. I'm not a competing God. I, we are harmonious. We are cooperative. And the witness I'm claiming right now about myself, I'm bearing witness about myself right now in declaring these things. I'm not alone. I don't do that alone. I just, I don't do that. Okay. So here are my witnesses. He's, he point, depends how you count the number of witnesses. You could count five or six or so. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to put it into three. There's three witnesses he points to here. Firstly is John the Baptist. Okay. You sent it, verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. This is the one Jesus gives like the least weight to. He spends the least amount of time on. All right. Secondly, is Jesus' works. Look at verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's a big part in John, these signs, these works, the things that Jesus does are pointers. They're miracles to help uh, enact belief, right? This miracle he just did, but not just the power, Right, that's, these are amazing parables that Jesus acts out. He heals this paralyzed man, which is amazing in itself. It points beyond to our eternal need, healing. Go back and listen to last week's sermon. And it does something else. It's signaling who Jesus is. He's not just a miracle worker that does nice things for people. He's not just a teacher explaining to you about the gospel message. He is the gospel himself embodied. And he's trying to point to that and prove it to you. Okay. Those are his witness. The father gave him those to explain, to persuade. Thirdly, thirdly, and I'm going to, it's, it's two things in one. Jesus does this right here in this text. The third witness is the father, or I could have just as easily said, the third witness is the Hebrew Bible. Look at it. Look at verse 37. Okay. So he distinguishes between the works that the father gave him to do and the father. Verse 37, he says, and, and the father that sent me has himself bore witness about me. 
So one thing, verse 37 was the works. And a second thing is the father who sent me. He bears witness with me. And then he immediately goes on to say, in talking about this witness, his voice, though, you've not heard. His form you haven't seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you. The witness that the Father has provided, not exclusively, but the one that Jesus focuses on here is the Hebrew Scriptures. You search them. You search them, but you're missing it. Okay. So that's, and that is his, their response to these witnesses. The, John the Baptist, the works, and the father slash the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament as Christians. Their response is to these. Firstly, to John the Baptist, well, they rejoice for a little while. The weakest of all the witnesses, they kind of are okay with that one. Jesus' works, well, that's why we're having this conversation. They're having this conversation because they reject Jesus' works. These Jesus' works, no, 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 these can't be, this can't be okay. We want to kill you because of your works. And now let's camp for a second, though, on this one. We're rejecting the scriptures. Verse 38, the end of that line. Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you. How can you say that, Jesus? There are people, it's not clear, but a lot of people believe that Jews in the first century often would memorize the entire, entire Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And then some, sex, some people believe that certain sects of Judaism, like the Pharisees, they would go on to memorize more and more books, the prophets, right? I mean, memorize it. The, the word search here is a technical word. It's like study, it's like an academic word that it uses here, that you, study, you search the scriptures. How can you say that, that word's not abiding in them? He, he, you've already read it, we've read it. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Verse 46, he's talking about Moses. He says, if you, believed, if you would have believed Moses, then you would believe me for he wrote of me. We've, we talk about this a lot in this church and we cannot talk about it too much. The Bible is about Jesus. May, like, it's not about primarily moral lessons, which is how if you, if you grew up in Christian circles, that's how he grows up. All the little Sunday schools and Bible studies is like, yay, look, Noah's Ark, be nice, let's be good, right? Like, Thank God our church does not do that. We have much, thank you for the children's curriculum we have, right? These things are about Jesus. And most, again, you, you think, oh yeah, the Old Testament talks about Jesus. There are these little prophecies. There are these hints, right? The virgin's gonna have a baby Christmas time, right? Yes, that is not what Jesus means. Merely. 
okay? We just read from that Isaiah 53 passage uh, a little while ago, right? This prophecy about Jesus that's, uh, is talking about something going on at that time, but points above and beyond to the Messiah, the suffering servant who will be our propitiating sin. Yes, but like that, keep going. We're not done yet. Keep going. You give all the, what people call typology. Jesus already referred to in John chapter one, talking to the disciples, Jacob's ladder. It's okay if you don't remember the story, but this idea that there is this vision that Jacob has where God comes to him and provides this, this connection between heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending upon it. And Jesus says, that's me. And Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he's already referred to Moses who when the Israelites had sinned and, and the judgment on that was these venomous uh, serpents coming out and biting them, they were dying and uh, someone interceded for them. And then they, the, the solution was taking this bronze serpent, lifting it up in the air and anyone who would look at it would be delivered and healed and saved. This object of the thing that was killing you, if you look at it, you will be saved. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be lifted up. That's talking about me. And we can go on and on that all these huge, big Bible stories, they are talking about something significant of themselves then that really happened. And they are pointing above and beyond. But we will miss it if we stop there too. The scriptures, all the scriptures are about Jesus. Sorry for whoever's preaching John chapter 12. John quotes Isaiah 6. He quotes Isaiah 6. If you've got a church background, you know this account. This is when Isaiah has the vision of the Lord on his throne and his robe is filling it and smoke is there. And at the sound of his voice, the thresholds are trembling. And Isaiah says, woe is me, is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. But then an angel goes to the altar where a propitiating sacrifice has been made and he grabs the tongs and it touches him. He says, your sins have been healed. And he invites him in salvation and to send him on a mission. It is this magnificent passage. And John chapter 12 says, the quote is, this is verse 41 and 12. Just listen, don't look at it. Listen, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus's glory. Isaiah said these things about the thresholds, about the throne, about Yahweh, because he was looking at Jesus. When you read in the Hebrew Bible about God, you are reading about Jesus. He's been bearing witness to himself. And this is why this is so, these indictments he's about to say are so hard to hear. And yet they're so, they have to be right. If this is what has been said so far is true, then his interpretation is true. So the witnesses are given, their response to is to reject them. And so what does that mean? What does you say that that means? He says, you don't have his word abiding in you. Verse 38, Jesus, how do, you know, how do you know that they don't have the word abiding in them? For you do not believe 
the one whom he has sent. Verse 42, he says, I know you don't have the love of God within you. How do you know that, Jesus? How do you know they don't have the love of God within them? Because I've come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. So this, I mean, maybe this is obvious to you, but to put it in this language is very hard. If Jesus is saying to you, I know you don't know God. How do I know that? Because I'm standing right here and you don't recognize me. If you look at Jesus and you don't see God, you don't recognize God, then you don't know God. The son is the father's representative. He only does what the father does. He only says what the father says. All of his judgments are the father's judgments. Everything he does is enacting God. And if we look at it and go, that doesn't look like God to me. Your criteria for God is wrong. And this is just as offensive today as it was then. Those people who aren't Christians, who don't see Jesus that way, they're just as sincere as you are, Brandon. They may be a lot more disciplined than you are. Do more good, etc. Very legit thoughts and responses. Very much. Like, so I'm not trying to like say, no, this is not an offensive claim. Jesus was, was leaning into it. He knew, he knew the claims. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him for claiming this. But also don't see it is a shocking claim. Okay, so not trying to pull back that it's an offensive claim, but see that it's not, it should not be a shocking claim. Okay, if I say, if I say, uh, imagine a group of like three people and, uh, you know, someone goes, oh, I love blackbirds. I love blackbirds. And someone else goes, yeah, I love blackbirds too. And that third person goes like, huh, you really, y'all like blackbirds. I mean, I'm pretty indifferent to blackbirds. I'm like, oh man, have you never, person one, have you never eaten there? Person three is like, oh, oh, I thought you were talking about like the little like animals, like little blackbirds. Right, so that's our atheist friend, I guess, you know, something. They don't know that restaurants exist. Uh, that's just one point of confusion. But then the other two are going like, yeah, I love eating there too. Like, oh, person two, they're tiramisu donuts. Whoa, every, I love them, just love them. Person one goes, oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know they had donuts there. I've never had that. I, I really love their, their burgers. Uh, and the person too goes, they don't have burgers. Uh, they like, and there's this cookie was like, yeah, well, I've been there every, every year on my birthday. Like they don't have burgers. And person one, you go, you fly to Denver every year on your birthday. No, there's a Blackbirds right over there in Newton. You get the point. There's a pub in Denver called Blackbirds. 
okay? And there's donut places in Boston that have called Blackbirds and they share a name and they have other things in common too, right? One is not a restaurant and the other one is a tree, okay? They have things in common, but we are talking about two totally different places. My, since moving, I, this is not it's true anymore. I used to hang out with Muslims every day um, and we had the same conversation a lot. I think I shared this with y'all already, but it's worth sharing again. Like you learn how to make conversations more succinct over time. If I preached this sermon over and over again, I would get you know, more succinct. Um, but they would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we Muslim Christians, we basically believe all the same things. You know, we love Jesus. We love Jesus so much. Uh, we just, you know, we don't believe that he was God and we don't believe that he died for our sins. And my response to that was continually like, oh, well, like those are the only two things I believe about Jesus. I'm using a little bit of rhetoric there, right? Like, but more or less, those are the two most important things I believe about God is that Jesus is him and that he became a man and died for me. And if those things are not true, and if I'm not persuaded of that, I don't now become some general theist. Maybe someone else does. I personally became a theist because I became a Christian. I was persuaded there was a God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is who he is. That's who he's revealed himself to be. Just because we use similar words. What is the case? Yes, you talk about Yahweh and you talk about these old stories and you like them, but if you don't see Jesus, you don't get the stories at all, is what Jesus is saying. This is, we've got to feel this. Like, so like big goal of sermon, the, the, the takeaway is feel what's at stake. Feel it. God is providing these witnesses. If we reject them, it's showing that we don't recognize the one true God. I'm not just talking about people out there, right? I'm talking about us right here. I'm talking about me, me. Very important. He says, uh, verse 40, the, the scriptures, they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That word refuse, it's just, it's very simple. Desire. The literal reading is, yet yeah, you don't desire to come to me. That is, that cuts across whatever religion you identify as. To me, right here, do I desire to come to Jesus? And how much and why? As I look at the witnesses, am I, am I stirred up? Am I pulled to spend time with him? Is it, a, is it gravity? Just like, all of our streaming services, it's like, I desire those. They pull me over there. The, the parties or the excelling at the work stuff and getting the stuff off the to-do list, they're, they pull me. Does Jesus pull me? And if not, what does that say about me? Crap. So what do we do? What about us? Very quickly, very quickly. You say, hey, I'm not a Jew, and I sure as heck wasn't back there to see these things with Jesus, so I don't have these witnesses. Yes, we kind of do. One, you're here, and God's kindness and providence, you're here. In the same way, like, uh, 
So you, you, are, you do have exposure to the scriptures, right? And, and we're not going to be able to, any more than the Jews could say, could, could have excuses. And like, we can't say, well, the preacher is just not very good. He's not very interesting. He's bad. He's kind of hypocritical. Like, there's a, surely there's enough here to go. Is there something there? Surely nothing else has been accomplished here. If nothing's been said well, if nothing's been clear, surely there's enough to say, well, yeah, this guy that millions of books have been written about, that millions of songs have been written about, He's claiming these things? We've read a few verses. Huh, I didn't know he said those kinds of things. Did he really say those things? If he did really say those things, were they right? Like, there's enough there. Go look into it. That is the biggest indictment. Yes, we have the scriptures and more. All of God's good revelation to all of humanity, like um, in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to a group of non-Jews, he could be saying the exact same thing to us today. He says, God made from one man all the people of the earth and he allotted the times and the dwelling places of where they would live. Why did he do that? Why did he decide us, 2024, Brighton, Massachusetts? Why did God determine that? This is what it says. So that we may seek him and that some of us would find him. That's why he did it. There's hints, there's pointers to say, there's things we need to know. There's something maybe not right with my heart and I want help with it. And do we, the biggest sin in the world is probably not trying to kill Jesus. It's indifference to Jesus. And we just gravitate back to Netflix. I won't go look into it. I won't try to figure out what's going on in my heart. Right? I'm just gonna move back. Those are the warnings he's giving us here. I skipped some of the warnings. Uh, very consciously, right? Guys, look for these witnesses. The scriptures here. Go to general, what's called apologetics. These are reasons, defenses of how do we know what's true? I think of them kind of like Jesus pointed John the Baptist. He's like, I don't, I don't need that kind of thing, but I do it so that you may be saved. And similarly for many of us, me, Importantly, how do I even know that there is a God? Philosophical arguments. How do I know this book has not been changed? Getting into history. Is there contradictions between belief in God or belief in the Bible and science? What about the problem of evil? What about divine hiddenness? I had lots of witnesses I needed help, help with. And they're in the scriptures and they're with other people. So come, don't wait. Don't wait, don't say, I don't know why I don't desire Jesus more. I don't know why when I look at Jesus, I'm not just blown away that there's God and have an experience like Isaiah six. But I think I should. I think I should have that kind of experience. That does make sense that if Jesus is God, that I would at least sometimes be struck, be struck with it, of worship, with awe, with repentance, with tears, with hope. And so will I now dive in? Guys, will I dive in or will I continue to the same path I've been on and expect something different to happen? Okay. I didn't start my timer at the right time. So I think I'm out of time. Friends, this church is here not because we are perfect, that not because we do community perfectly by a long shot, not because we do mission well by a long shot, but we just be an outpost to say, hey, we're people who see in the face of Jesus, he is God. And I lament that I don't even, I don't have the pool. I'm glad I'm not trying to kill him. That's good. That's an improvement. But like I want to be on my knees in awe and, and joy, okay? 
And we are gonna, we're trying to do that together. Will you dive in here? These Sunday gatherings, our community groups, phone calls, text messages. Hey, what's a book I can read? Don't go blindly look, start seeking on the internet. Work with us and let's, let's work together. You may, you may have things for me that I need. I need help. Come and find us and investigate. Is it true? Is Jesus God incarnate, Savior sinners in whom we can have eternal life? He wants you to see it is. He wants you to have it. Will you pray with me?